Thank you for joining us for our second Argus podcast on marine fuels. Our guest today is Adrian Tolson. Adrian doesn't really need any introduction in the bunker industry. Over 30 years of experience in the logistic and supply of marine fuels globally. He is now director of the consultancy Blue Insights and recently appointed board member of the bunker industry body IBIA. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. We are nine months into 2020 and the IMO uh, 2020.5% sulfur cap uh, has gone well and experts like yourself uh, starting March, April, May um, uh, said so that the transition was well, had gone smoothly. But recently we've uh, we've seen an increased number of quality claims uh, reported in some actually major ports. Uh, was it too soon to say that it was a success? From an overall point of view, of course, I think it was obviously a significant success in the sense that the goal is to to reduce the sulfur levels. So, and we've done that, um, and you know, whether through abatement or through uh, lower sulfur fuel. So that that goal is there, and as a stepping stone towards uh, the emissions issues and decarbonisation of shipping, I think it's an important step. Um, from a from a technical point of view, I think it was it's probably a little bit early. To get too excited, I, I've certainly, I think we've we've seen some issues in uh, clearly in the last few months regarding the aging of these uh, new fuels, um, and some of these may or may not be uh, uh, brought on by um, the fact that we're dealing with different streams coming into the supply pool that weren't that weren't anticipated or weren't there before streams coming as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, you know we've seen a, an increase in number of perhaps more paraffinic fuels, um, people not having total ideas how to deal with those fuels in terms of keep maintaining them aboard ship. Uh, segregation is one thing, but temperatures and, and keep maintaining the right temperatures, giving above pore points and things like that. So I think the challenge has been dealing with these fuels um, in the sense of what we've seen come out of the industry. And the third the challenge is we come out of COVID at some point probably from a refining point of view, not till next year, um, is to see how the fuels alter in that period of time. So I guess I would say from a, a, a buying point of view, it's a time to still be pretty vigilant because the supply pool changes all the time or continue to change all the time. Uh, as you and I know, um, it's we're dealing here with a, a global industry, a global industry of bunkering marine fuel, fuel oil trading that arbitrages cargoes around the world and ultimately they find the best location the best price relationship location to go to so i think in this case you can expect oil to continue to move around the world and you continue to get strange mixes and blends of products being brought together which may cause problems on a regional basis that we've not expected to see right and um well, another headline and, and a sad one uh, of 2020 so far has been the, the demise of some large uh, players and actually not necessarily uh, downstream ones, meaning bunker supplier ones, but uh, also uh, upstream in nature, uh, such as Hinyong, uh, Zen Rock, and, but, but also Coastank, uh, International Pacific Petroleum, IPP, and more recently, um, 
GP Global, although again, um, it doesn't seem that the marine fuel desk was was the, the the main issue there. And and following those stories, we saw we read about international banks, um, their trust in, I guess, the industry in general sort of wavered a bit. Now, in in your 30 years, you've experienced. Uh, quite intimately, the ups and downs of, of this market. So what are the consequences of, of what's happening right now, meaning banks, uh, you know, some of them pulling out completely from, from the industry? What, what are the consequences for um, suppliers, traders, but, but maybe buyers alike? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've seen a few crises, uh, a few ups and downs of the oil market. As you say, I experienced a number myself. Um, uh, and generally survived. It's hard to see all the all the different strands of influence, all the changes that are coming over our industry, the marine fuel industry, sort of run together, right? So, so you know, I, a lot of this I, you have to put back in in what's happening to certainly to this industry is a is this sort of global move towards transparency in our business. And I think if you look at, you know, you take example of MFMs coming in in Singapore, uh, etc. You know last last decade and and the build up to that and the growing realization brought down by um you know probably by the work of some very good inspection surveying companies regarding the fact that you know things weren't quite as kosher as they might be in the in the bunker industry and so i think what you're seeing here is this realization that uh, this industry and even to a large extent the commodities industry is not quite as clean as we've all made it out to be and I'm not saying we as you and I, but I mean, as the as the, the we painted a better picture of ourselves than we probably deserve. So um, I guess from that perspective, uh, what we're seeing is a reaction to this. At the same time as this, we're also seeing a lot of changes going on in the, in the supply structure, different suppliers coming in who have different motivations, who are um, uh, run in a different way, have different internal governance, are 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 quote unquote, more, you know, more correct in the way they operate. And so that's exposing a lot of the entities in the industry that aren't. Um, yeah, add to that, you have a sanctions regime that's been more aggressive under uh, the US administration for the last few years, uh, you know, perhaps building from previous administrations and building from previous sanctions regimes. But the reality is it's it's come home to roost. And I think it's impacted a lot of the companies, perhaps within Europe or, or even some of the European banks, have turned a blind eye to some of these things. So I think it's huge. I think this what happened with Henley Ong is indicative of all these trends, uh, and it's sort of a passing of an old guard of the industry to a certain degree. And not that there aren't many of the old guard left, there are still, but it's a changing of the industry, a shift in 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 the way we look at things. The impacts of it are huge, significant. I mean, it's, I was struck by the fact that not just the bunkering industry or bunker companies came out and sort of just explained that they're perfectly sound financially. Nobody should be worried in transacting with company XYZ, but also the fact that commodity traders came out too. The big commodity houses, the week after or two weeks after Henley Leong collapse, were all out doing PR activity. The big names, the big Swiss and Swiss-based traders coming out and saying, we're okay, don't worry. Um, so obviously the, the ripple and effect of this is through the industry is significant. What I think it does is it, it makes it harder 
it harder to people to operate. There is less liquidity in the market. The bigger companies with bigger balance sheets and more assets uh, that vet well will get credit. The smaller companies won't or find it very difficult to get or have to pay significant premium, probably more than they've done in the past. You know, I think that's painful, but it also perhaps indicates to us all what the trend is going to be in the industry in the future. Where are we going as an industry and who will be the future players in the industry, so to speak? And I think it's pushing us in a different direction. Uh, you're moving away from, you know, that that era that, uh, you know, the 90s and early 2000s where the independents tend to dominate to a different a different marine fuel market. And so I think that's supported by the, the financial challenges we face right now. Right. It's it's, it's definitely a um, sort of a forced transition, what has been going on. And and another one, obviously, and, and we'll talk about it, uh, will be, um, you know, IMO 2030 and 2050. But uh, before this, talking about, you know, you mentioned some regulators and so on. Now, with your recent appointment as board member of IBIA, uh, that comes with responsibilities, uh, and I think, um, especially now, uh, our attention is 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 um, heightened uh, and uh, regarding of what IBIA can do and deliver and influence. Right? Um, just first of all, just tell us what are the priorities of IBIA for the next uh, 12 months, so that we can kind of figure out what's what's in your agenda. Right. Um... Obviously, the multiple priorities, um, you know, it's a diverse group of industry individuals, you know, companies, I mean, you know, majors, independents, you know, brokers, traders, etc. So, yeah, I think, but as a general goal, I think it's pretty clear that we're very much behind um, the sort of push for transparency. And I mean, by that, the the efforts at licensing uh, of and different ports, uh, MFMs, those sort of things, I mean, the pain in Singapore is obvious, and we know ex-members of IBA have suffered as a result of having to transition out of the the old the old way of Singapore. But the reality is, for the industry to go forward, we we need that transparency, and IBIA needs to support it, and we need to be encouraging authorities, governments to to get involved and to make that happen. So I think that's a that's a primary goal of of our business, and and. I think another side of it, uh, the primary goal of, of IBIA's business, another side of it is to be truly a glo- uh, to be global, uh, represented globally. Um, you know, when I, I remember going back in the, the 80s and early 90s, I used to joke about IBIA. I would talk to people, I'd say it's just a bunch of London brokers and traders who would get around and have a few beers, you know. Uh, and in some ways, that was exactly what was going on. Right. And the global component is what's terribly important because you want the physical suppliers, you want the ship owners involved, you want all these people involved and you want them involved around the world. So spreading that, setting up regional boards of IBIA, getting membership from across the different continents of the world, very important for IBIA. Um, you know, and the, the last goal would always be, would clearly be the quote unquote, the environmental goal. You know, we're, I mean, we all recognize that need, <laughs> that pressure. Uh, we all recognize what's going on and we need to, as a company, be aware, uh, as a group, as a board, be aware of that and, and deal with that and, uh, and to some degree lead it where we can. So I guess those are the three, 
key things. Great, great transition. Your last point. Um, IMO 2030-2050. Um, no need to go into the, the specifics of it because we've we've heard extensively about it, and which is a good thing. Um, now, is a global mandate achievable, and uh, will it be eventually passed on? I think it's it's. Um, 2023 is a date that people have expectations for IMO to really trigger something concrete uh, uh, on this. Now, um, Dirk from the CEO of uh, Good Fuels uh, in the first podcast uh, last month said that a, a global mandate is a bit of a, I guess, moonshot. Uh, at least in the in the short term, and he, he foresees more like regional, you know, emission schemes uh, um, uh, regarding GHG and CO2. What's your view on this or IBA view on this? Well, I think um, I'm not sure I would I'm trying to entirely on behalf of the IBA board because there's differing opinions on it. But I think um, my view is that I believe IMO will come out with a global mandate in 2023. And I think it'll probably be ultimately more stringent than the one that we've seen, you know, put out for discussion. If you look at the fourth green, the greenhouse gas study, the fourth greenhouse gas study that was just released, um, that was pretty damning. Uh, you can argue that it was, you know, people can argue it was unfair in certain ways and not representative, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, it's pretty damning. And I think given the state of the world, the state of play in the world, uh, I cannot possibly see that. 2023 not going ahead and the mandate 23 and a probably more stringent one than we've anticipated so far. So I think, uh, and, and that's, that's all good from my perspective. So, you know, it prevent, creates challenges, but, you know, I think the industry is quote unquote ready for that challenge. Good. And, and um, you, Blue Insights uh, just published, uh, I think last month or the month before, the low carbon shipping fuels and energy guides for uh, 2020. Uh, excellent, by the way. And um, so, so, so you've got 11 fuels and energy systems, basically. And it's, it's, that's right. It's great because it's a go-to guide per, per fuel and with experts in each field and companies backing each one of them. Now, it, you're, you're agnostic about uh, each one of those with the pros and cons. But just want to put you on the spot here. Give me the what are the top runners here for 2030, 2050? Uh, is it ammonia, methanol, uh, bio LNG, or just tell me? Take a, take a well, if I, I could tell perfectly. I'd be I'd be already investing lots <laughs> of money, right? Um, apart, I mean, part of the problem is you got to you got to know which companies to back because there are so many developments. But if I look at if you look at the world right now and you look at where we stand, I mean. You would be crazy not to say what's going on in the world. And yes, we're talking ammonia, we're talking hydrogen, we're talking methanol. But the reality is most of what makes sense in a, a shipping world that has no money at all, right, uh, effectively, and not to mention global economies that don't have an awful lot of money to, to, to spend on you know, developing those sort of infrastructure right now, is the easy, is the low-hanging fruit. And the low-hanging fruit, right, is, is a combination of bio and LNG. And that, to be honest, is where I would see it at the moment. So if that's my 2030 path, that's where my 2030 path is, right? I would guess that we'll see more and more bio uh, coming into the industry. And, and I think it was Exxon yesterday that announced they're right. going to start supplying bio in, in Rotterdam, right? Instead of bulk, I think, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, so, you know, and then the LNG 
infrastructure is to a certain degree already there. I mean, there are there are in major ports, there are LNG suppliers. They're not huge. They don't have perfect infrastructure. But the reality is, if you had a vessel the trap going around the world, you could, you, in a, with a certain exception, certain areas, you can find LNG. So that to me, while it's not the perfect solution, clearly, it is uh, it, it is it is a solution that does reduce carbon in the short term and is sort of available. But the easiest one, of course, is and you know, go back to Dirk and Goodfields, right? The drop in bio, whether it's 100 percent blended or whatever it is, is a very easy solution to get us to that level. Now, there's going to be competition for that. Right. And so that challenges go forward 2050. I think that's a very difficult question because. A lot depends on how the technologies develop and what come and what comes along. But naturally, um, you know, we we see the 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 less dense fuels in, in terms of energy density being used for short sea shipping, right? The, 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 we don't we we're not expecting to run a, a VLCC on a battery, for example. That's probably not going to happen. Components of that VLCC may be, but not the ship itself, not the main propulsion. So you're going to, but we do expect to run ferry boats running across, you know, New York Harbor or wherever else it might be, right, that way. So those are real solutions. Hydrogen is a somewhat similar solution. It needs a lot of space to store. So all these other technologies come in, but they, and they fulfill ultimately sections of shipping. So shipping, the bunker market is no longer homogenous in, in its structure. It's not IFO 380, as in the good old days. It's lots of different types of products and lots of different types of solutions for the types of ships you have. That's a, that's a bit of a cop out for a 2050 solution. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to say it's sort of ammonia. Uh, it obviously has to be something that allow, that that emits significantly less carbon because in order to get there, get to these even the current levels, the current levels of decarbonization, you're going to have to have a significant drop in carbon emissions from individual ships. So ultimately, you're going to have to fuel what produces no, has to produce no carbon or indeed has a negative carbon footprint. Yeah. So that has to happen and that has to happen to a certain degree of shipping. So if that's if that's my answer where I'm hedging myself a bit, that's good. But I think I think that's kind of where I see it too early to really pick that winner, to be honest with you. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to now quote um, a passage, actually, in your uh, Blue Insight uh, Low Carbon Shipping Fuels Energy Guide. Um, You're saying the traditional marine fuel landscape in which bunker suppliers, traders and brokers exist today will likely not exist or be completely transformed in the future. So what's I mean, the, the, the managers and directors of, uh, you know, World Fuels, Bunker Holding, Cockett, Peninsula, Monjasa, NSI, and so on, just to name the, you know, the largest international ones. Um, h- how should they position themselves in view of 2030 and, and 2050? I mean, it is a long term goal, of course, but, but uh, you know, you're saying those are strong words, right? Will not exist or be completely transformed. So how should they? change well uh, the, the their intermediaries and the intermediary role is is still available i think the biggest change is who's going to be the supplier um you know we've we've already seen a transition with uh, with ima 2020 and vlsfo uh, out of certain suppliers being significant simply because they didn't have an angle on 0.5 or etc 
So, and you're starting to see other suppliers, like some major oil companies, uh, large refiners, even commodity traders entering the space because they see the positive crack on 0.5 as an interesting, an interesting um, play or from a from a trading point of view, right? So, so that is the, that is the first movement, I guess, into into that that I see going on. I think I think that um, for so that will tend to push out some of the smaller companies. Now, as far as positioning themselves as an intermediary, I think it's very important um, to be aware of what's going. It worries me, and uh, I don't know why it worries me, and perhaps because I'm a bit old school myself and remember the old school industry, that the, a lot of the, the existing industry will look at the 0.5 transition as, oh, that's great, we got through that. Sort of thought that's like we started out the conversation, right? Oh, that's great, we got through that. And uh, now we don't have to do anything for a while. You know, there's 2050 things a long way in the future. Let's not worry about it. Let's just carry on supplying 0.5. And slowly but surely, they the existing names that we know, household or shipping company names or yep. shipping tra- chartering desk names, dis- start to disappear from the supply structure. In other words, it becomes less important. Um, you know, the the current intermediaries less become less important because they've not adapted to the change in the industry. Um, they're not adapted to the fact that there's multiple fuels out there that that ship owners need, um, you know, real relationships, real long term commitment, long term relationships with with suppliers in order to build a new technology or create a new technology. And let's face it, you, you don't see a lot of that right now. I'm not saying that I have heard that, you know, many of the names you talk about having are engaging already trying to engage in new fuels and new technologies. But it's a challenging space for them. Because I don't think they they they're no no better at picking the winners, etc. So, other than keeping people informed, um, we will have to wait and see. I mean, this also comes along at the same time as the industry is sort of bit, a bit worried about credit, right? right? So, you know, how does that play? You know, clearly, a lot of these new suppliers will need middlemen. They will need intermediaries to not only to help find a market, but they will also need them to to um, to uh, provide credit to to facilitate the credit transaction, so that provides a, a, a door open. I'm intrigued. There's you know there's two or three websites now uh, mm-hmm. that, that claim to be, for example, a, a, a place you can source LNG from. Right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like um, you know they've opened up recently, and uh, you know they I'm intrigued that these have come on. These and these are not run by traditional brokers. They're not run by a World Fuels or a Right. Uh, they've been one is run by a classification society for, for goodness sake, which is which is a very interesting. So when you see that, you start to realize that that's a field you've got. You've got to be aware of what's going on. You've got to adapt. So I think from the my message to the intermediaries is is keep an eye on it. Be aware. Put some of your brightest and smartest people into there because this is, requires a lot of this is inter- requires intellectual firepower and be aware of what's going on. I think from the supplier point of view, it's it's just altogether more challenging, right? Um, if you are a traditional bunker supplier used to supplying a liquid fossil fuel in a port, not a very large port, how the heck do you go from buying a, a barge load over a barge load to suddenly becoming an expert in hydrogen supply? It's a huge transition. So I don't I don't think that's achievable. So we will lose people, but we will also gain a lot of very good names and good companies too. Right, some new names out there for sure to look out to. Um, listen, it's it's uh, uh, 
it's probably time to 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 wrap it up if um do you have anything else that we've uh, we haven't touched upon or or any last thought for for our listeners yeah i mean i think <laughs> it's a lot we haven't touched upon but <laughs> yeah I, I think the key thing here is is that um i think uh, key thing is adaptability right not to be afraid of the change to try and embrace it i think it's it follows on a little bit from that last discussion we had about intermediaries i think there is there is huge opportunities to come along and we have and then those of us currently in the existing bunker industry have an expertise in the industry that that we know the customer base we understand the ports operations we understand the way things work. these are all these new providers and new sellers don't have that so if you look at a lot of the guys who are starting up in the business and providing new fuels and technology, they got a lot of people who used to work in the the old, the old bunker industry. So mm. in other words, they're bringing in people with experience to help them operate. So be I think from an industry point of view is the be adaptable to what's changed. Don't resist it. And also I think from uh, another point of view is 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 do not make sure you don't um, um, how can I say don't. D- Make sure you don't just ignore what's going on and pretend, uh, you know, that it's unimportant. For some, it might be unimportant. You know, right. life moves on. They may want to retire and, and sell their business to another person. But I think it's that. So I think the industry is highly adaptable, capable of adjusting to this as long as we remain open minded. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd like to think that 20 years down the road, a lot of people who are still in the industry now will still be in the industry. That's, that's my positive side of it. Well, I think it's um, it's it's uh, it's a positive outlook, and I, I agree with you. It's a very resilient um, industry. Thank you very much, Adrian, for for um, joining us. Thanks, thanks, Zach. Appreciate it.